Principle one, accept everything just the way it is. Principle two, do not seek pleasure for its own sake. Principle number three, do not, under any circumstances, depend on a partial feeling. Principle number four, think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Ultra Working Podcast. Today is twice over a very special podcast for us. First, because we're going through uh, a very powerful, very interesting document that's had a pretty significant philosophic impact on a number of people on the team, including myself, the Dakota by Miyamoto Musashi, one of the greatest swordsmen in Japanese history, founder of a school of swordsmanship, undefeated in very many duels, um, a real cultural icon in Japan, um, and also a Zen Buddhist and a calligrapher and a painter and, um, you know, and a bunch of other, uh, other interesting uh, vocations and avocations and pursuits, a wonderful thinker. Um, and this was his deathbed testimony. We're going to be looking at it together today. So that's, that's already very special. The second element of why this is a special podcast. This is the first time Lee Knowlton, our CTO and myself are on podcasting together. Lee, who, uh, when he was doing his, uh, his graduate studies, when he was a graduate student, he lived in Japan. He was quite influenced by Japanese culture, did some martial arts, um, out there himself and, um, quite, quite steeped in that tradition. So I think this is a wonderful first show for us to do together. Lee Knowlton, thank you for, for joining me as we, as we talk about this. It's a pleasure to be here and um, yeah, very excited to dive into these things. Yeah, my, myself as well. So yeah, let's talk a little bit. I think it's almost required before we go through the Dakota to talk about Miyamoto Musashi's life and samurai philosophy in general. And, you know, you spent enough time in academia that you like to be like rigorous and epistemologically sound and well-cited and know what you're talking about. Me, having not had as much experience in academia, I have no such constraints. I could be a little uh, a little more uh, appropriately humble, but but fast and loose. So yeah, Musashi, it's, it's tricky, right? Because he's almost like a, it, it's much later and he's a real figure and, and he really existed, but he has a little bit of like a, to put in a Western context, a little bit of like a King Arthur quality to him of like, you know, Musashi like existed. He was like a person. King Arthur probably existed too, is the, I believe the current consensus. But then it's like, there's all these like, oh, did this, a duel here happen? Did he, was he involved in this battle? You know, the kind of the, the, the mythology has grown, you know, over, over yep. the centuries a little bit. So actually disentangling the quote unquote, just like boring factual historical details from him, from the mythological, he could jump almost superhumanly high and cut people in half um, sort of thing can be tough. What, 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 what do we know a little bit, or what, what does the listener need to know before we go through the Dakota his deathbed testimony after a life of study and training and philosophy and swordsmanship and, and art? He was actually, he's a wonderful fine artist who did these amazing, you know, ink paintings and, and these, these Japanese Zen style um, paintings and drawings. Um, what does, what, what's the listener need to know about who this person is if they haven't heard about Yumoto Musashi? Yeah. Well, you know, Musashi, like you mentioned, is is very much a quasi-mythological figure in Japan. In fact, he's known as like a, a sword saint at Kensei. Um, so that's the warrior of legendary skill title that, that you get. And uh, there's also a, a fictional depiction of, of Musashi that's very common to run into as you learn about him. Um, some people might have heard of the, the comic Vagabond or read the fiction book. Um, entitled Musashi, and and in Japan they they often call that Yoshikawa Musashi, um, based on the author's name because that's like a romanticized version of his life. And so there's a little bit of unpacking I think that, that people do as they interact with the mythological fi- figure Musashi, the um, romanticized life figure Musashi, and and then the the real Musashi. So uh, different Musashis, and I think we're gonna we're gonna look at the the real Musashi and some of the work that he put together um, later on in his life today. Yeah, and and I do think Yoshikawa. So so Musashi by Eiji Yoshikawa is just absolutely a treasure of a work. It's one of my I don't know five or ten favorite books. It's wonderful, wonderful fiction by Eiji Yoshikawa um, in Japan, and it's like reasonably accurate. And the parts of it that that we know aren't accurate are like plausible. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't go totally off the, off the historical rails. 
uh, let's say. But yeah, talking about the real Musashi a little bit. Um, yeah, he lived in a very violent era. And he was like a very, 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 very good, very, very dedicated swordsman who wasn't just like, I'm good with a sword. He was also like, he thought a lot. He was absolutely a thinker and was deep into training and, um, you know, and, and really studied the, you know, the philosophical sides of, of swordsmanship and life and death and battle and fear and poise and calm and training and alertness and attention. What, what stands out to you about him, you know, biographically and background before we get into the Dakota? Yeah, so there are a few things that really stand out. Number one is that, um, so he's from a, a small village, and that's the same um, in the novel as, as in the real life. And there's a, in the beginning of one of his books, you know, he writes that he's trained in the way of strategy since he was young, and that at the age of 13, he fought a duel for the first time. The opponent was an adept, and the opponent lost. And so at the age of 16, he defeated another adept, another swordsman. And, and when we're talking about defeated, uh, it doesn't mean they had like a play fight and, and the other person, you know, just like gave up afterwards. This is, this is some serious violence involved in, at a, from a very young age. And so I think the, the context of the overall time and, and how people were growing up as well as you know, what was normal and what wasn't normal to be 13 years old and face an adult in, serious swordsmanship and to the extent that like it was serious for, from the adult's perspective it's hard to tell i suppose um they're probably historical documents or maybe not but yeah looking at the the context of the time he's from a, a small village relatively small village he does have a, a famous ish father in the area who was also involved in martial arts and so he wasn't completely untrained and, and something like that and and he's creating a saga as he grows up of fighting people who are self-proclaimed uh, swordsmanship experts or, or, or not even self-proclaimed, but uh, recognized experts at swordsmanship. And, and this is the, the saga of his life as he goes from one place to another, growing up, um, going to bigger cities and things like that and, and fighting these people and uh, in many cases, probably killing them. It's a very unconventional life by modern standards. Yeah. And like it's also like for people that don't know the Japanese history, you know, there's a there's like a quality that exists rarely um, in history where like a quote unquote like violent era. You know, we we know a lot of the the Renaissance when Machiavelli was writing. You know, in the in the in the West had like you know these like local city state factional fights, and there'd be like a bloodbath on one side one, and and it, it's funny, right? Somebody will go through and they'll read these stories now. And they'll be like, oh, this is just like Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's like, yo, that's where, the, that's where the writers got it from. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, so you know, uh, you know, Musashi came up um, relatively late in the warring states era of Japanese history, which, again, my closest comp is like the Italian city-states thing, because it was like a 30-sided civil war. You know, it was like 30-sided and the alliances would shift and two people might be really, really good friends, but then one of them passes away from old age or illness. And then his son takes over and gets persuaded to join a different side. And then these two old, uh, you know, friend families, like in a Shakespearean way are now fighting each other on the battlefield. And it was, it was like very, very violent. The whole system had kind of like broken down. Um, and it led to a, a series of the Sengoku civil wars. Um, it's really, really complex. It's also really, really interesting because usually in a one side versus another side civil war, one side wins and the, the winners write the history and there's there's not really a neutral neutral party to record it on a 30-sided civil war you have multiple perspectives you know on you know the goodness or badness of the different people and uh, you know yoshikawa had um speculated in his his fiction of musashi that if musashi had been born like 10 or 20 years earlier he's probably like a general during the sengoku civil wars maybe maybe not who knows right um but yoshikawa put that in there but it was like really like it was like just sunsetting the big battle, Sekigahara, that was kind of like the, it's pretty much over and we're getting into the cleanup phase of yeah. the civil wars. Um, happened when I think Musashi was like a teenager, right? So it was like, we just left this huge violent era. You see this as well, you know, in the in the, the Greek states, you know, after the, the Peloponnesian Wars, um, where there's all these like very, very violent people. Right. But like the violence is like the, the, the need for societal level violence is kind of subsiding and like civil life 
isn't like hasn't come back together yet. Do you know what I mean? So you had all these like really violent people with like a lot of time on their hands now that the wars are over and they would go duel each other and they would get into martial contests. That's like what they knew. That's what they wanted to do. Um, sure. I'm sure there were some predatory banditry things, but among the samurai, this wasn't predatory. This is like, they, they were like raised for battle. They were like raised to fight. And then like suddenly the big battles are like kind of over um, and Japan is unified. So like a hundred years later, it was like very, very peaceful and like dueling somebody without a good reason would have been like very, very punished. Right. Um, by the authorities. But in this era, you know, authority hadn't been kind of like reconstituted yet. So it's like a very, very violent era. There were bandits and stuff like that. So you could make a little bandit hunting career um, out of your out of your life if you wanted and go protect people from these ravenous bandits. Um, and there was plenty of unemployed soldiers, warriors who wanted to go test their sword. And that's such a big part of the Japanese samurai culture that uh, test yourself in battle. It's not just theory and, and ceremony, especially in that era that, uh, yeah, 13 years old, you're scrapping with somebody and, you know, his first lethal duels again, were probably before he was 20. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I wasn't able to figure out from the sources whether the 13 and 16 year old duels were lethal. Yeah. I know it, it does talk about his, some of his early 20, 20s duels being lethal. Um, like what's, what's our guess as to how many of his duels out of, I think they said there's like 60 something that, that are recorded that might be correct or might not. Um, what would we guess in like half of those are lethal, maybe, maybe a little more. Yeah, it's 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 really hard to tell. I, I would presume so because it's pretty hard to fight seriously. You would think it would be hard to fight seriously without without um, the risk of injury, even if you're using a, a wooden sword or something like that. A book again. Um, but I did read uh, a story of him um, sparring with a, a lancer, and um, you know, a, a touch with the with a weapon would be considered a loss. And so there was, there was certainly some etiquette um, going on in some places and, and <laughs> less uh, or, or rather a more serious fight in other places. Yeah. Cause there's like sparring, there's like sparring, which is like, yeah. okay, you know, in that era sparring is like kind of risky. You know what I mean? You absolutely could get maimed or even killed if you have a, if you land awkwardly and take a big hit. Right. And then there's like, you've insulted my owner and like, we're now going to settle this. Um, okay. So violent, violent era, um, violent era. Um, also an interesting characteristic of violent era is people are often very spiritual and there's a lot of piety and religion. So there was definitely a bunch of, uh, uh Buddhist and, and Shinto, uh, religious movements in Japan. There was like a, there was a big resurgence of, um, of particular types of Zen Buddhism around this time. Um, and, yeah. So he had a childhood where, you know, he was raised as, you know, he was like the next generation after two to three generations had been in like constant bitter struggle. And then it kind of cleaned up and like, you know, around the time he's, he's, he's passing away two generations after him, it's like peaceful. And, and like you, you wouldn't duel somebody without like a really good reason or the authorities would get upset with you. Um, how did that kind of track through life? Yeah. Well, I think one interesting part of, of the transition from this warring states period into the less less warlike period that that came afterwards is how swordsmanship and and this group of people who um, worked as soldiers um, transitioned into a, a different type of life and you know they kept a lot of their martial skills with them but like we know of the like we think of most martial arts nowadays um they started to take on more of an aesthetic quality and you can see through the development of Masashi's life that while he was involved in duels throughout his entire life um the philosophical side of the martial arts the strategic side of the martial arts um started to become take a take an even more important place um than just purely how do how do we like go out and win a battle and so you see a lot of the philosophical tenets a lot of the the application of swordsmanship to art and in Musashi's case painting um he was also an excellent um, artist and developed that skill later on in his life as well and and then um the philosophy that came along with it and you mentioned buddhist philosophy before and while I think it's relevant to mention that like while Musashi didn't maybe didn't see himself as a practicing Buddhist, 
that there is a lot of um, Buddhist cultural philosophy embedded in his belief system and the kinds of things that he writes about and the kinds of uh, ideas that are implied um, in his words and his work over the course of his life. Yeah, well, so that, that's an interesting one. I think we can get right into into the Dakota from there. Because, yeah, for the second half of his life, he stopped dueling. He won his, his famous duel, probably. I was actually trying to look into the historicity of his duel with Sasaki Kajiro. And there's actually some, like, they're not 100% sure exactly what went down. Probably something happened, but, like, the whole, like, when, like, scholars went through the records of this, like, very famous yeah. kind of capstone duel against, you know, it's kind of like the, the number one contender versus the number two contender. It was like, you know, Foreman Bob versus Ali or something, right? You know, um, he, he won that duel and then, and then uh, didn't, didn't have any fatal duels for the rest of his life. And, and that's really when his career as an artist, um, as a writer, he wrote the Gorino show, The Book of Five Rings. Uh, we're not going to talk about that today um, too much. Uh, maybe, maybe touch on it. Um, and then just an incredible, incredible um, ink painter. And I, I think it's really worth looking at. Um, you know, some of his ink paintings of like birds and landscapes and stuff like that. They're really just like astoundingly nice. They're like really uh, both very skillful and, 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 and very poignant and very striking. Um, so yeah, let's get into, let's get into the Dakota. So, so this is a, you know, somebody that was, was really serious business their whole life was dueling at age 13, you know, was from a samurai tradition, was from a very violent era. Um, perfected a variety of uh, techniques and swordsmanship. I, I think he's credited with inventing the two swords style of swordsmanship where you have a katana and a wakasashi at the same time. I don't know if that's accurate. Maybe other people had done it, but I, I believe he's commonly given popular credit for fighting with two uh, samurai longsword and a samurai shortsword um, katana and a wakasashi at the same time. Um, and yeah, he had some some really, you know, some, some, some epic fame duels and then did this amazing art. Um, he had some pupils. He worked for some samurai lords at various times. Um, and then he, you know, on his deathbed, he wrote the Dakota, which is 21 principles, you know, and um, it's just such a beautiful document. We read the first four of them, you know, which starts with accept everything just the way it is as number one. And then number four is my favorite quote in the whole world. Think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world, right? There's 21 um, of those principles. Um yeah, it's beautiful. Let's get into it. Dakota, what's Dakota mean? Yeah, so Dokodo is is the path of walking alone. The do in at the end of it is is like the the way. Um, and then the dok and ko are are alone and walking or moving respectively. And so yeah, it's the the way of walking alone. It's the particular style of life that he adopted and. Um, saw himself as a, a representative of and and the book itself you know is a it's a deathbed testament like you mentioned um and it was also dedicated and passed on to one of his students and so there's some some context around there um it seems like he did the majority of his writing uh i think both the the book of five rings and the dokodo were written well the dokodo was written on his deathbed and the book of five rings was also in the at least at the very least the last year of his life um, is, is what they scholars typically attribute it to, I think. Um, and this was, yeah, dedicated to his student, passed on to his, his um, I believe, to his favorite student, his favorite pupil, um, or something of that sort. And it's a, a list of 21 principles or precepts or however you want to, to translate them. But each one is, the translations into English, I think, are, are actually do, do a really nice job and, and quite elegantly. Um, in Japanese, they're more compact, and um, to really unpack it and and do a good job translating, you need to look at each individual word and and see what meaning um, could you could get from it. Uh, like number one, um, they they use the word yo or world twice, and um, like so, what kind of nuance does it does it have to use the word world, and what kind of nuance does it have when you use that twice, and how does that change things? And so it's like the world as it passes over time. And somehow that gets translated into accept everything just the way it is. And actually it's a really nice and elegant translation, but unpacking each word at a time um, gives you a little bit more context and a little bit more, more depth when you're doing it. Yeah. What's the Japanese, what's the Japanese on accepting everything just the way it is? Yeah. So the Japanese on, for number one, on accepting everything just the way it is, is yo yo no michi o somu koto nashi. 
And the, the first part is yo and say yo yo. And so that's society or the world of human beings um, and things like that. Michi is the way, the principle. Somuku is to go against. And so we have like the world, the way, go against. And then uh, at the very end is like uh, negating the going against. So don't go against the way of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't go against the way of the world. Yeah. So you can see how you can see how the translation of accept everything just the way it is could be interpreted in a really different way than like don't go against the way of the world. What does the way of the world mean? Uh, and there's a lot of you know cultural and and um, time period knowledge that's kind of embedded in what the word the world means and the kind of Buddhist philosophy that backs it up and stuff like that as well. Yeah, and this is why this is why I, I say you know. This is why I say, you know, Musashi is, uh, you know, is clearly, I mean, he, he was friends with and studied with some, some Zen priests and monks and scholars um, and things like that. Um, and I, I think it's a near certainty, for instance, that he would have heard the, uh, the, the Buddhist uh, parable of Hayakujo's fox, right? Um, Hayakujo's fox in Japanese culture, right? Um, so, so, you know, in, in, in Japanese, uh, in Buddhism in general, depending on the different sect of Buddhism, there's like reincarnation or there's not, depending on how seriously you take the Buddhist metaphysics, whatever. Right. But in like very folkloric um, Buddhism, there's absolutely, you can get reincarnated as certain types of animals. And if you like are like really naughty, you might get reincarnated as a naughty animal, for instance. And Japan also has this thing about like foxes have this special significance as this bewitching, confusing thing. Um, you know, it's kind of like in, in, in English, you know, in America, in America and in the, Anglo culture is like a black cat is like a bad sign. Do you, do you know what I mean? Right. Like the Fox in Japan has some special yeah. significances. Yeah. yeah. So there's a story called Hayakujo's Fox where, um, like the head priest of a, a temple, like a Fox comes by and speaks to the guy in English. Like, Hey, I got turned into a freaking Fox. I used to be a priest and I got condemned for misleading people. And I got turned into a Fox and I've been reincarnated as a Fox like a hundred times in a row. Right. Um, help me like get out of this. And then the, the, the head of the priest said, like, what would you do? That's like really bad, man. Like, how'd you screw up so bad? I'm getting details a little wrong, but so roughly this. Right. And he's like, well, a lady came to me and said, like, is cause and effect real? Do you know what I mean? And I said, no. <laughs> and now I'm a Fox. What do you think head priest of the temple is cause and effect real? And the head priest says, do not neglect cause and effect. <laughs> so do not neglect cause and effect, right? So you see some of that in there when, you know, you're striving for an ideal and, and accept everything just the way it is speaks to me a lot, right? As an executive, as a leader, as somebody that like wants to make a nice positive impact on the world, you know, you might think, you know, okay, cool, we're going to do it this way, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then it might not work, right? Because like the way of the world might not be what you like. You know what I mean? And there's also in Japanese culture, there's a tradition of, they celebrate. It was less common than people thought, right? It, it, the, the, it, like it's because the stories are so epic, we hear about them, right? Um, it just kind of like somebody that's like, no, you're going to have to burn me alive. I refuse to repent, like, the percentage of scholars in the West that got burned alive for like <laughs> not repenting, do, do you know what I mean? Versus like, 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 hey, yeah, yeah, my bad, my bad. Just totally spoke wrong. Got it. You know, yeah. hey, the Pope, I'm with it, you know, right? Like, but those aren't the great stories, right? So there's like these stories in Japan of somebody like intentionally making a big freaking scene and committing ritual suicide or seppuku to point out like on virtue. It was like less common than maybe Westerners would think because those are the super celebrated narratives. You know what I mean? Japanese people have their own unique culture. There's a lot of honor. There's a lot of duty um, that persists even to this day. And certainly in that era, it was very high. But I mean, like there's still people and they're really like expedient and do cowardly things. And there's some very interesting samurai books about like tricky samurai stuff and treacherous samurai stuff. If you dig a little more, they're not the best sellers in the West, but there's um, some of those. I believe like the samurai banner of uh, the Samurai Banner of Furin Kazan. There's a couple of those like books that talk about like sneaky stuff Samurai did in, in fictional tales that are just like not super popular, right? Um, there's some of that too. But, you know, Musashi here is saying like, yeah, okay, like, cool. I've got my honor. I want to be a great swordsman. I want to respect the way. But like, 
that that's not like stupidly get killed blindly when it's avoidable for no reason ish yeah 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 it's interesting that the english translation that we're using is flipped um in japanese more literally it's like don't go against the way of the human world as it as it goes through time and in english it's accept everything just the way it is Hmm. um and i think there's a like an admonishment of wanting to wanting to change things or get stuck in your own perception of, of what's going on. Um, so he's a little bit more direct and admonishing rather than encouraging mm. <laughs> in his own version. And um, yeah, as, as we look at these um, there's, there's this one that we just mentioned and, you know, there are some other ones like um, uh, even more direct, uh, do not pursue the taste of good food. <laughs> and uh, you know, I can't wait, we, we can come back to this in a little bit, but I can't help but wonder if he's like writing this for a student who like, was a little bit was a little bit into the into the good hungry. food every once a little in a while. bit hungry um, or for himself yeah yeah i want that okonomiyaki it's like no don't don't do it <laughs> don't do it don't do it yeah exactly so there's certainly some some admonishment here and and you know it it would be wonderful if we had the the context and we're able to read the minds of both Musashi and his student as, as they're reading these different things um, as, as the student is receiving um, this Testament from his master. Don't pursue the taste of good food. Don't hold on to possessions. You no longer need be indifferent to where you live. Yeah. This document, you know, it's a funny thing that you see in, in, you know, kind of principles or, or strictures, right? You see this in the 10 commandments, right? Where, um, you know, some of the stuff seems like a little bit redundant. Do you know what I mean? Like, don't, don't steal. Don't even think about stealing. You know what I mean? Like, right. And it goes through, you know, right. It's like, could, could, we, have, could we have nine commandments? Don't steal or think about stealing. You know what I mean? Like, could we, right. Um, and, and so it covers the same ground somewhat. Right. So looking at the, the Dokoro, right. Number two, do not seek pleasure for its own sake. Right. Number five, be detached from desire your whole life long. Right. There's some ones that might or might not, we might or might not class that like don't have regrets and don't be jealous. Maybe, maybe not. Don't let yourself be saddened by separation. Eight resentment and complaint aren't appropriate, but then like 10, clearly the same thing. Do not be guided by feeling of lust or love. 11 and all things have no preferences. 12 be indifferent to where you live. 13 do not pursue the taste of good food. There's some more of those. Do not hold on to possessions. You don't need, do not collect weapons or practice weapons beyond what is useful. Um, that's like a long list of like, don't get off your game by sensory perception stuff. Like don't let sensory desire get you off your game. Something like that. Yeah. I think that's a really, a really nice reading of it. And if you put it in the context of Buddhism and and Zen and, and also the decision to dedicate yourself to the way number 21, never stray from the way, um, you see, you can you can almost take number twenty one and go whoop, and encapsulate all the rest of them in the like. How do you not stray from the way? Well, you don't pursue the taste of good food. You don't have any of these material attachments. You you don't regret what you've done. You don't care where you live. You think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. And um, and I think I, I just have this intense desire to be able to see why and to whom Musashi was writing each of these things. Like he was writing it for his student and, and why did, why did the thing about food make it on and, and what got left off? Um, the, when I was doing research uh, about Musashi, we had, um, a, there's a book by Kenji Tokitsu, I think is his name. Um, and he, he wrote that a lot of these, you know, precepts are, are difficult to get at the, true core meaning of it because you know it's it's written for the disciple um and so when you have something that's in really condensed language that's written with a lot of implicit understanding and beliefs um as a person who isn't living in that time period as a person who hasn't had the same experience um how do you how do you get at the the true meaning of this and and can you can you unpack it without that cognitive knowledge without that experiential knowledge um and so yeah i'd love to love to be able to to see all of this context surrounding it and really be able to dive deeply in 
Um, and of course, as, as scholars later on, we can only do our best to approximate, but I think there's still a lot of, a lot of lessons in here. And um, perhaps we, we supplement with the experience from our own life and, and take it for our own meaning. Yeah, the, the point about cognitive and cognitive knowledge, we could, we could touch on. There's a wonderful, um, wonderful scholar, the Tao Te Ching, um, where like mm, a bit of a simplification, but Zen Buddhism could be seen as a, a not entirely incorrectly as a fusion between Taoism and um, Indian Buddhism, right? So, so Buddhism migrated from India to China. Historically, it's attributed to a guy named Bodhidharma, like a Indian martial arts monk that came, you know, very long time ago. History on it's kind of shaky, right? And then the the Northern Chinese Chan Buddhism um, was was very fused with Taoism and took on a lot of Taoist characteristics. Um, and then that migrated over to Japan, probably like Tang Dynasty-ish era, and um, became Zen Buddhism in Japan. And they talk about cognitive and, and cognitive knowledge. Um, I think we've talked about that on the podcast before a while ago. Uh, cognitive knowledge is intellectual knowledge. It's, it's theoretical knowledge, right? I could, um, you know, I could say, hey, you know, if you're playing golf, you need to have a good backswing or whatever. Right. But if I've never actually like swung a golf club very effectively and ineffectively, and I didn't know the difference, I'm just saying words. I don't know what actually what that would feel like. I don't know what the, the club feels like in your hand and what your elbow's doing and how your shoulders and hips are moving or whatever. I've hit a golf ball around, I don't know, probably probably a couple, less than a couple hundred times in my life. Played a couple of rounds of golf, but it was never my thing. Right. So you can have like a deep, I was there understanding. Whenever somebody says you had to be there, when they're trying to describe something, they're saying like you need the direct experiential cognitive knowledge as opposed to cognitive knowledge, right? And that's a, that's an interesting thing. That's a tricky thing that when you look at these works, I mean, the thing, whenever anybody's like, wow, Musashi's so cool, like it'd be amazing to be like that. I'm like, hold on a second. If this exact same guy with the exact same psychological characteristics and even like a somewhat similar upbringing, if you could somewhat have like he had street fights or something, like the current, like Musashi born in, in, in the year 2000 would not be, a swordsman like like i mean he might like practice it a little bit to learn but like if he was a, a you know a warrior at all he'd be using a glock <laughs> do you know what i mean but he might be a research chemist <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah. like it's you, you know what i mean it's it's he he wouldn't be you know going around the countryside with a sword being like all right who wants to throw down <laughs> that that's like really just not how it would go what i think would be really useful and interesting for people is to really try to pull apart and look at because some of these are really quite universal Right. So, you know, do not seek to possess either goods or fiefs in your old age. I don't think most of us are seeking fiefs. Right. Um, and like, I, you know, do not collect weapons or practice with weapons beyond what is useful. You, you know what I mean? These are like, OK, like, uh, I mean, OK, there are people that like collect a lot of weaponry, but it's a lot more rare than the samurai used to do. This was like a common thing for the samurai to like get an accumulation of swords. Yeah. There's people, you know, in the United States, for instance, that have a large collection of firearms. Um, but it's pretty rare relatively to the samurai. Right. But then there's like number 21, never stray from the way. I think that's just as, uh, you know, if you accept what's going on in general, the way, you know what I mean? That's just as true. That'll be true 10,000 years from now. If any, if anything's still alive at that point, you know what I mean? So, Let's try and fail to talk about the way uh, a little bit because the, the, you know, most of the Japanese thinkers in this topic, whether they're, um, you know, in a, a practical, talking about a practical field like sword fighting or pottery or an aesthetic field like tea ceremony or whether they're, you know, directly a religious devotee in Shinto or Buddhism, um, there's this common understanding of this thing, the way. And there's like specific ways the way of the brickmaker, the way of the swordsman, the way of the blacksmith, the way of the farmer, the way of the merchant, whatever. But then there's like the way, and that's like the way. There's like one, the way. How do we try to, you had to be there. You had to be <laughs> but, there. You know, you how do we there. try to get across what the way is that people don't, shouldn't stray from? Yeah, I think that in Musashi's case, I think that it's, for me, it's quite clear that he's talking about the way of strategy, the way of living in a living a life that's focused around martial strategy and and martial arts and and things like that. And that's implied in in number twenty one. Um, he's not just writing like 
the way of pottery or something like that, or even more, even, even a more abstract the way. I wonder if he's trying to say that because, you know, he does talk number 16, don't collect weapons or practice with weapons beyond what is useful. It's, it's quite clear that he's not writing to your average farmer um, and, and their way of the farmer or whatever it might be. Um, so I do think that it's useful to see never stray from the way in the context of, of strategy and martial strategy, but you can, take that and abstract it out one more. And I think one profound thing about the, the way um, capital W way is that it's seen as a good thing to have a hyper-focused medium through which to channel your life. And so for Musashi, this is the way of strategy for someone else. It's, it's something Mm. else, but you have this, this medium, this thing that you center your life around, that's not yourself. That's not your sensory pleasures. That's the way of doing strategy. That's the way of doing pottery. That's the way of doing swordsmanship or whatever it might be. And you use this as something to think deeply about, to develop to to such an extent that you're able to reach some kind of sublime state perhaps. And this is me failing to talk about the way as well. So attempt 10,001. But uh, I think that there's a, uh, quite, a, quite a profound element of focusing your life around something that you see as beyond yourself and making it the purpose of your life to never stray from that. You could see this in, in religious tenets and how people approach different religions as well. But um, during this period in Japan, the way of strategy and the martial way was certainly one of the potential ways i think the way of in question in this document yeah my my read on that overwhelmingly was he was talking about big way Mm. that he would have thought that he could make instruction number 21 to a painting student just as well now you know we could look in the japanese linguistic construction you know what i mean but you know and part of the reason is you know 19 20 21 19 is respect buddha and the gods without counting on their help is the english translation which i love yep. which i love because there's there's a couple of different ways that could be read do you know what i mean so you know um number 15 is like do not act following customary beliefs right right so it's like you know like question everything Right. And, and he did and, and made a lot of innovations in swordsmanship and mastered a lot of fields. But then like number 19 is like, don't just be a freaking jerk. That's like impious and tramples all over people's religion, whether you believe it or not, which is ambiguous respect. You know, it's a little bit ambiguous as to whether he's a, a you know, buys into the metaphysics or is an atheist. Right. But he's like, look, don't follow customary beliefs, like actually figure out like what's going on in strategy or in painting in anything. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean just like be a freaking jerk, you know, and insult people if they're in, um, in Japan, there was, there's different types, um, different sects of Buddhism. Right. And like, it was much more common for, for common people to be pure land Buddhist, which like has a lot of uh, similarities to Christianity. It was very like, like, be nice to each other now. And like future life will be great. Kind of heaven and hell. It, it's, it's like a lot closer to Christianity than when you think of, uh, you know, what you think of when you think of Buddhism, right? Um, and then the Zen Buddhism at that time was freaking hardcore. So most of the people in the West that know about Zen Buddhism, it, it spread through California and California made its impression on Zen Buddhism. I think if you sent some some California Zen Buddhist works back in time, you know, um, to to the great thinkers, uh, you know, the great Buddhist thinkers and scholars of that day, they'd be like, this is defiled. <laughs> like these these people are going to hell twice over because of it, Right. Um, they, they, they smuggle some Western, Western ideas into the, the Buddhism, even though it's like, it's, it's, it's not putting anyone down. I'm just, just saying. So, um, but then, you know, when he says, you know, number 20, you may abandon your body, but you must preserve your honor. So you got like number 19 is like a theological point, right? Respectfully in the God is that kind of their help. Number 20, you may abandon your own body but you must preserve your honor. I think like he's wrapped on the martial stuff at that point. And then he's like, never stray from the way, you know what I mean? Like, like that's not like when you put down your swordsmanship thing, you, you know, like you put your swordsmanship down to do like painting, like be freaking serious when you're painting too, which he was, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like never stray from the global macro 
there's better and worse. Better and worse is even like not the right way to put it, but there's like, there's the way and like being on the way and not straying from it is like the best thing you could do when you're alive. And it's like very easy to stray from the way and like straying from the way is like really freaking bad. That sounds, that sounds very plausible and I could see him wrapping up like that. Yeah. So coming at it, right. It's kind of like, it's hard to be dedicated to something. Do you know what I mean? It's like difficult to train, to be a swordsman. And, you know, Musashi literally, literally ended the lives of people that like thought they were fancy swordsmen in fancy clothes and like spent more time like drinking and having nice food than training and studying and getting, you know, getting dedicated. And then they would go to duel and that person would be revealed as like less skilled and then their life would end. Right. So that's like the cause and effect thing. That's like really quite clear that like, if you're on your mission, if you're on your local way, what you're doing and you're actualizing the big picture, like in the universe, there's like a way to be, you know, there's a, there's a Christian quote that I think I actually would apply, which is like, you are not punished for your sins, but by them, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. I, I think that like could apply. Like you're not punished for your sins, but by them. So it's like, like being on the way is like pretty good. And it's like hard in the moment, but like you get lax, you know, you start like thinking about all your weapons collection and not practicing, you know what I mean? And, and you get not vigilant. You're going out, you're looking for fancy food instead of thinking how to like order your mind and your body and your craft and be like excellent. Like bad things happen to you and to the people around you and to like the world as a whole is like a worse place if you suck. Yeah. I'm trying to think about the, how to conceptualize the way in a, in, in, as a forcing function, right? I think that the way you, you can look at the way as a big shape to, to um, fit your life into and, and to make different decisions and to help you make decisions when, um, things are tough and when it's not obvious and you have, you have this kind of overarching piece of, of guidance that, um, is always, always helping you with the tough choices that come along. Um, if you're doing the way of entrepreneurship, like what kind of decisions do you make? as as a person who is embodying this way it's not just something that you do it's something that you are and that you become you never stray from it but it's also embedded in in your like life um and it it really does take on a a different nuance or different characteristic than I, i think how we look about how we look at the world um in the modern age, like you do this job or you do that job. And, you know, some people certainly have this kind of thing. Um, I, professional athletes come to mind, the, the really serious ones who shape their life around their activity of, of choice. Um, but for the vast majority of people, I think that this is the exception and not the rule where you have something that you shape your life around and that you make decisions because of, and that also provides a, um, guiding force to, to something greater than yourself. Um, so yeah, trying to map the way to, to the modern world is a really interesting question and, and, um, hard to, hard to look at through the lens of modern life because it's, it's very different. Um, at least modern Western life. I'm from California and that's the lens that I see the world through, but I think there's a, a lot of value in being able to understand what you're, version of the way might be and to use it as a a guiding force. Yeah. And you know, the, the the one place that you still see this, you know, the the one place that you still see this in the West is in the traditions of the, the military services that had their, you know, their kind of their core strictures and their documents and their doctrine and their ethos, like formalized before, you know, the, kind of explosion of uh, individualist consumerism. There's a lot of good food now <laughs> available. You know, Musashi was warning you don't get out of good food. Now, now we could get on like 
fusion avocado Mexican Thai, uh, you know, with a little bit of uh, New Orleans uh, bouillon base mixed in or whatever. You know what I mean? Like you could, there's, 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 there's sensory pleasure like, uh, yeah. like could not have even been conceived of mm. um, in the late Sengoku era, right? Um, and yet, you know, you look at, you know, like the U.S. Marine Corps, their documents, we were looking at one recently, a Marine Corps leadership document. And it was like, you know, following from the tradition of the Marines that came and fought and lived and died before us. Do you know what I mean? So it's like Marine isn't like a job, like, oh, what are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing some Marine stuff, like whatever, like do a run, fill out some paperwork. It's like, no, it's like a way. There's like the way of the Marine. They don't phrase it exactly like that, but it would not at all be out of character. You mentioned yep. athletes. You know, mm-hmm. there are athletes that are more like, hey, whatever, it's just a job. Sometimes if they're really lucky and they get traded to a really good team, maybe they win something, but usually they don't. And then there's athletes like Tom Brady, who's like, he's after the way, yep. not just the way of football. He's after the way. And he's like pursuing that through the way of football. You know, he's like very, very serious, you know, about football or Bill Belichick, the coach. And he's all like, and he's simultaneously doing the way of coaching and the way of football. Do you know what I mean? But he's after the big way. He's on reality, you know, and and he has himself as embodying a pure expression of the most excellent and harmonious and appropriate and ethical way to navigate a domain entirely such that one's personal kind of bullshit dissolves and isn't uh isn't allowed to get in the way of the way i don't know something like that use the word being on reality what what do you mean there i think i think i understand where you're getting at but could you could you explain what you mean by on reality being on reality yeah so i mean musashi's document is not a martyr's document it's not here's how to be so brave that you die for the cause Right. Here's like how to actualize the way and be like a pure embodiment of of an idea or an archetype or a force in the world with like a lot of and and his is, again, the way of, uh, you know, doing it uh, alone as opposed to as part of, you know, military or a command structure. Mm -hmm. Right. But he was like, you know, the way of being a solo ascetic um, kind of warrior. Right. Um, But then like. Yeah, like you go in accordance with reality. You know, from his his other book, the Gorino Show, the Book of Five Rings, uh, everybody's favorite quote, not everybody, but most people's favorite quote from that book is, no matter, I'm going off the top of my head here, but it's something like, in all the things you do in a sword fight, you have to be thinking of cutting the enemy and cut the enemy with every motion. When you parry, you don't just parry, you parry and cut the enemy. When you swing at them, you don't just swing at them, you swing at them and cut them. You know, when you defend, you defend and cut the enemy. You know what I mean? And like, that's, that's everybody's, if you don't do that, if you're just swinging, parrying, you know, blocking, you will not actually cut the enemy and win. And that's the objective of the battle. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then he also gets quite technical on like, you know, if you can't have the sun to your back, then you should only take this stance to protect your eyes from the sun. Do you know what I mean? And like, just taking into account everything. It's not like the braver samurai always wins. It's like, you want to have the sun in the right place where it's either a distraction to the opponent or neutral, but not to you. If you are on bad terrain, you should adjust your stance accordingly. You shouldn't have a preferred stance. If they have a slight high ground on you, there's a different stance you take to fight. And then the objective is to win. It's to cut the enemy. So it's, it's not, this isn't an idealistic document. And I think people could mistake it for that where it's like, never be jealous because like just being jealous is like a bad thing, man. It's like, look, being jealous is going to like screw you up. You're going to get yourself in trouble, right? It's going to take you off your game and it's quite possibly going to get you killed. You might like challenge somebody to a duel. You shouldn't challenge them, yeah. you know, where you're totally not ready, um, you know, or, you might be like thinking about them and getting all heated instead of like just training and doing what you need to be doing. So yeah, I, I think it was like very on reality. You mentioned just a moment ago about um, swinging at the target and actually cutting it or whatever words you may have used. Um, 
this has a, a really interesting parallel to the kind of work that we do at ultra working and, and doing work and actually having value created from the work. And uh, I thought that's it's quite, it's quite fascinating in that you, you're not, you're focusing on the outcome and the input, like the action that you're taking, but not forgetting that it has to generate the outcome um, that you're getting at. And I wonder, I wonder if you have any other thoughts on, um, on that specifically or on the taking of some kind of way like principles, like we're we're reading in the Dokodo and being able to, to make good use of these, um, in our way, uh, or, or in the way that we might, uh, look at modern life and, and how you've applied it yourself or, or seen it in a useful application. Yeah. The first thing that occurs to me, and you can tell me what you think, Lee, and, and this actually just sprung into my head. I never, I never had this thought before is that, mm-hmm. you know, I think in just Western culture in general, people want, Hey, give me five to 10 minutes. Give me like a gold nugget that like changes my life immediately. And like, you can make stuff that like sounds good. And every now and then there's just a, a very powerful concept. There are very powerful concepts that can be gotten across in 10 minutes. There are. And it's like really cool when you get one of those. Almost by definition, there's a limited number of them. Otherwise, we'd have a steady stream of them and, and we'd be in this like hyper Star Trek utopian whatever, right? So, <laughs> you know, Musashi, like uh, in his other book, and Goreno Show, like there's a bunch of times where he like explains something about like, blah, 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 bring this spirit into battle, prepare in this way, look into these stances. And then he's like, you must study this thoroughly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then he moves on. And like, that's the conclusion, right? So, you know, I think some of this stuff is you must study this thoroughly. I think there's two or three threads in the Dokoro. The big thread is never stray from the way, but like, you aren't already familiar with that and even not even familiar but if you're not doing it already that's not useful except to point at it to maybe look into it right but then there's like 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 i look at dakota like what there's like three themes in here like one the way right two like accept reality three mm-hmm. like be in equanimity, right? So like, do not fear death, be indifferent to where you live, do not pursue the taste of good food are all like, look, those are all like, it's a very Buddhist thing. Cause he doesn't say avoid the taste of good food, right? He doesn't say don't eat good food, you know, under a traditional Buddhism, you know, you, you, yeah. you don't want to crave, but you also don't want aversion, middle path, right? Like, so if you go to a samurai banquet and they're serving, you know, just this, this beautiful thing, like you can have it, maybe not something, maybe or maybe not, depending on your, your assessment, maybe or maybe not alcohol, maybe alcohol is always bad because it puts you in a dull state, so you're not ready to fight. But like, you know, if they're serving like nicer food than you normally eat and it's appropriate to eat it, like go for it. It says, like, be indifferent to where you live. That doesn't mean go live in the most horrible place ever. That means you could be living in the capital city. You know what I mean? In the, the best district. But if you're not, like, that's okay. You could, you know, make make good use of wherever you are. Um, and, I mean, those are the three threads that I see, right? Which is, like, I mean, it's really, like, no craving, no version. Like, do the thing and, and, like, be on reality, right? That's kind of the document, no? Yeah, that's what it seems like to me as well. Um, and as much as I think he was writing this for his student, you know, obviously you don't come up with these ideas out of nowhere. And these are probably the guidelines that he had been practicing himself. Um, this, this reads like somewhat, somewhat of a religious text where you feel like it's like handed down from someone as a, a set of rules for someone else to do. And well, this was written by a person on his deathbed for his student. But still, um, these were likely the things that he tried to live his own life by and probably had to remind himself of and probably failed at and had to try again um, time and time again. And I think there's, uh, you you mentioned practice and and things like that. And um, these are things that he's had to work on and come back to. And it's not a a 10 minute um, epiphany, but rather a, a piece of wisdom that he picked up over time. 
that he's worked on again and again and wants to, to pass on to a student. I think there's something really interesting in that idea and its applicability as well. So I think the aspects of the way, you know, this is like a very unusual concept um, to people in, 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 in Western societies. But, you know, I think if somebody was like younger and they're listening to this, there's some people that just have this innate sense that like, I want to do something with my life. And they either have like, I'm pretty sure this is my thing, right? Like I'm a gymnast. Like I know it just calls to me or they're like, I know there's something for me and I want to do something special in my life. I don't want to just get by. I want to do something special and, and be dedicated to it. Those people, this will just resonate with them. Maybe they're already on the path and it's like, okay, cool. You could go look at the samurai stuff for some inspiration. Obviously the world's very different. It's worth putting in context, but I think it's a very nice thing, you know, for somebody to uh, encounter in their early twenties and, and, and look at this, just this different world. Um, from before. So I think, you know, the people that the, the concept of the way resonates with, it'll resonate easily. And then, hey, it's a little bit of, let's do some research. Let's do some study. Let's understand this. What does it mean? Wow, this is cool. How do those people do it? It's very interesting, you know, just to, to look at these people that, that um, you know, were so dedicated and disciplined and, and thought and lived a different way in the past. And that can certainly inspire and inform us in the present. The harder sell, I think, the harder thing to get people to reflect on, right, is we live in a culture and a society where like straight up, not being a, a, not taking a political position here, not taking a big sociological position here, trying to make a statement of fact, right? As a statement of fact, uh, if you have any exposure, if you're not like Amish with like no TV or whatever, do you know what I mean? That's that's living a very traditional life. If you're on the internet, on social media, watching TV, listening to podcasts that have ads on them, like doing anything where you're just consuming mainstream information, you're getting told all the time that your desires are freaking great. And like, you should even enhance your desires and add and layer on more desires to those. And you should just be as desirous as possible. And by the way, we've got a new flavor of chocolate bar. It's mouthwateringly delicious. You need to get it. Gotta have it. Gotta have it. Mouth-watering new flavor of chocolate bar. You crave chocolate. Get the chocolate. Right? And I mean, like, I mean, like, Instagram is, like, two-thirds this. Look at how much better my makeup is than yours. <laughs> do you, you want to be pretty and have your lips really puffed up and glow? Of course you do. We have a new flavor of chocolate-flavored lipstick. Get on it. Right? Um this is constant. And so I think it even gets to the point sometimes where you're like, Hey, you know, it's the funniest freaking argument in the world where somebody's like, look, I'm very committed to whatever. I'm becoming a medic. I'm in a woodworking. I'm a musician. I'm very committed to that. And besides that, I'm trying to have no desires. And like people that are like, well, you're desiring that, (laughs) you know, right? Like it's like, Oh my goodness. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, This idea of like, Hey, we'll find something and commit to that. And then like, yo, I don't need to have the 37th flavor of chocolate. I'm sure it's nice. Right. People would always say to me, Hey, Sebastian, did you watch Game of Thrones? Did you watch the Sopranos? Did you watch the wire? Did you watch Breaking Bad? It's great. It's great. You'd like it. It's great. I'm like, I'm sure I'd like it, but it's like, I use that time for something else that I would have consumed this, this wonderful program. And, I, and I've seen clips and, and elements of these shows. Some of them have beautiful costuming, beautiful drama, beautiful character acting. Uh, some of them are just wonderfully written. I'm not putting it down. I get why people like it. Right. But you know, like I'm reading about like the young Turk revolution in the Ottoman empire and they're like, Hey dude, you gotta watch game of Thrones. And I'm like, yeah, all right, hold on. I'm just I'm doing something over here. Or I'm like, you know, working on inventing, building stuff, doing R and D. I, I think, so I think, People don't realize that, you know, you can pick your limited amount of things that you stand for as part of like a a global, you know, I'm on the way. I'm like doing something serious and being like very good at it. And there's like elevating aspects for society. That was one of the beliefs um, the Japanese had is that somebody doing a really, really freaking good job at anything was good for society. You know, like somebody making a really, really good wood carving and being very, very serious about it is like, you know, the person that's like, just like working in the kitchen. Do you know what I mean? They look over, they see somebody doing a wood carving perfectly. They're like, I should be a little more careful when I cook and I should clean up a little better. And that's like, 
a big part of why Japan's so amazing is there's this idea that we should all just be exemplars of whatever we're doing and just do it really, really, really well and outstandingly, right? And uh, yeah, I think people resist the idea. I mean, it's a very simple proposition that like watching Game of Thrones competes with other activities that you're doing. And I mean, yeah, sure, you could do that, but like you can't do like 18 things like that, right? Um, and the second, like you can just jettison a lot of the, the I don't know, people like almost don't like the idea that you can um, jettison all these secondary matters. Like we're uh, literally, is a, not a metaphysical, but as a very factual statement, we're literally encouraged to have and pursue all of these uh, easy to satisfy with cash <laughs> desires. They don't require skill, discipline, training, production, doing, serving, right? But yeah, you just throw some cash down, get the new flavor of chocolate. And the idea that you could like get rid of that belief, not be in a state of deprivation, but like you could just be indifferent. And then like, yeah, you don't get the, Oh my gosh, I want it. Okay, I got it. I feel great. You lose that, but you also don't have to go through the, I want it. And, you know, under the Buddhist theory, the cravings can't really ever be satisfied. Um, they'll be back tomorrow, you know. Um, what do we think about that? Because that's that's the very interesting period thing that'll be, like, the way is hard enough to, like, get people to, like, understand, right? That we're going to be, like, really into something. But then the idea that you can wear away, dissolve those secondary criterion and like be more equanimous because of it. That's, that's a, it's a hard thing to get across to the modern, modern people. It's a hard thing to get across. And I think it's true for both objects that people want as well as for experiences that people desire. There's been a trend towards experiences instead of things and that picking up steam, but I think it's the same thing for experiences. Um, not to say that experiences are, are bad or, or good, but that we, can be indifferent to things that aren't on the way. And I think it comes down to number four in the dokodo, to think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. So as we're trying to do that, thinking lightly of yourself is these things that you desire things that your body wants, things that um, society tells you what you should want, and so on and so forth. And thinking deeply of the world, uh, you can think about things in the world, but also also the, the way of the world. And the particular way that you've decided you want to take to its end, to follow, to make decisions based upon. And so when you're thinking of lightly of yourself and thinking deeply of the world, you're making decisions based on what you've decided is important to you, not just the inputs that you have. I firmly agree. And I think it's a beautiful sentiment. I'd add one thing. I wish, I genuinely wished that everybody got to experience a domain that they're world-class in and getting a sustained performance of going deeper and deeper and deeper in it. Because I think a lot of times when people talk about this sort of thing, they think that like Musashi or, or you or me, Lee, or we're like the no fun police. It's like, no, I want the chocolate. And it's like, if you had ever done a beautiful piece of writing that as you're putting it together, you're like, wow, I'm working on something special. And I presume as someone that's not a swordsman, you know, I presume that when you're working out a swordsmanship technique, you're like watching other people fight. You're like opening some notebooks and diagramming, talking to another sword master. Like, how do I counter this move if I'm in this bad stance? looks like if I'm in this bad stance, I get killed. And it's like, oh, drop the knee, raise the sword, guard recovery. And you're like, wow, this will like save my life or one of my students' lives. Um, I, I want to be able to do this risky attack. This is the one failure pattern of his I'm overextended. And then I'll immediately drop one knee. Do you know what I mean? And then like, like slide my leg back to recover. And it's like, you just like discovered like a, a geometric biomechanical swordsmanship principle about the world that could literally save your life or one of your students' lives um, in a duel. Um, when you do something beautiful, you know, as, as hard as this is to believe for a lot of people, for some people, math and, and going through and exploring and discovering new concepts and sometimes even the brute force calculating of just like summing up numbers and exploring them is you can just get lost in them. And it's so beautiful. Right. So when Masashi is advocating 
you know, don't pursue good food and be indifferent to where you live. And, and uh, somewhat more obvious on things like don't be jealous. We didn't spend a lot of time on that. Don't complain. These are like a little more obvious that they're just deleterious. Right. But he's, I don't think he had a, a life that was like boring, you know, like boring and unsatisfying mm-hmm. at all. I think he had a very, very, very highly immersed life with probably a lot of very peak experiences and, and also probably did a lot of the training. Um, obviously there would have been some hardship in his life, but, but probably less low points as well. Probably just hit a high baseline of, you know, morale and esprit de corps and purpose to put it in a more modern terms. So I think people should study this thoroughly. Study it thoroughly. Sounds like a plan. We need to do more of this, Lee Knowlton. This was absolutely a pleasure. Um, this is great. Absolutely. My pleasure. A lot of fun and looking forward to future podcasts together with you. Thank you, Sebastian. Thank you, Lee. And dear listener, we will throw in the description of the show a little bit of information about Musashi looking up the Dakota if you want to look into these things a little more. As always, thank you for listening. Be well.